Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 35th blockbuster episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that starts a new format every time we need to move out some cards. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody. Glad to be here and looking forward to a special 35th episode because James upgraded his internet connection. So hopefully, uh, you guys wouldn't have no you guys wouldn't have noticed it on your end because uh, the way the audio picks it up, you guys don't hear it, but I hear it, um, and it has made some of our back and forth a little difficult. So hopefully, we can have uh, some slightly more natural conversations, um, or at least James will have one less excuse to make why he doesn't want to talk to me. Uh, (laughs) This show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today, mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All righty, Travis, what's on the agenda this week? Well, James, we've got four segments this week. Segment one is our top movers. These are the cards that have seen the largest price changes in an upward direction over the last week. Segment two is our cards to watch, uh, where we will go through the cards that we have our eyes on as uh, potential profitable picks. Segment three is our metagame we can review. We're going to touch on a couple WMCQs from across the globe. We have one in Hong Kong, one in Scotland, and one in the Philippines, all modern. And finally, segment four is our topic of the week. We'll touch on Frontier, the new format announced by Hararuya, as well as the MTGO changes that were debuted today. So we're going to start right up, uh, right at the top of segment one, our top movers, and that's going to be Smuggler's Copter out of the uh, not quite yet released Kaladesh. Starts at seven dollars, and uh, it's gone up to about nine, so a, a fairly small change of about thirty percent. Although um, I don't remember if we talked about this last week or the week prior, but this card started out. Uh, during pre-release season at about $2. So um, this has seen almost a uh, 500% growth since it was initially put on pre-orders. Uh, so if you managed to pick up a set at $2, congratulations. If you somehow picked up tons and tons of set, um, I'm glad that Sam Stodd emailed you and told you what FFL looked like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, Smuggler's Copter is the rare out of Kaladesh that is most likely to be a perennial four of in the format based on everything I've seen so far. Um, I mean, the pros are going to play some of their cards close to their chest leading into the pro tour, but there's still a lot of articles being published by um, a lot of players um, and and people that are testing uh, early versions of the format saying that Smuggler's Copter is delivering. Um, so I think if you've got, you know, just your own play set, uh, you know, hold on to those if you think you're going to be playing with them. Um, it's going to be, it's going to have... There, Pretty much all the rares in Kaladesh are going to have trouble holding anything over $5, given the masterpieces being in the set. Um, but extra sets that you picked up around 2 or 3, or even you know south of 5, now is a good time to be trading uh, those out. I think that it's going to be very tough for this card to hold um, you know anything over 10, or even close to 10. So if you can get anywhere between 10 and 15 as the hype builds, um, you're definitely going to want to get off that train and then look for another entry point further down the road. There is an outside chance this card gets some modern play at some point. Um, and if that's the case, then the sky is the limit, uh, especially on foils. Um, but yeah, that's my two cents on this one for now. Yeah, I, I am. I for a very brief moment considered this card in modern, but that format just seems too blisteringly fast for this to ever really uh, make an appearance. Um, you know, it's just one of those cards. I think very powerful and standard, but can't cut but the mustard. The question in modern is, what's the card that you know you're not attacking with, so that this thing can get in and and do its loot business? Um, and that's a lot of resources to commit. Um, to getting a 3-3 in that might just get pathed or bolted. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you figured out how to make Pain Seer work, if you found a deck that needed eight Dark Confidants, I don't know. Uh, I suppose anything's possible, but um, you'd have to really want to be tapping but not attacking that one creature. Um, okay, next up is... Uh, I'm going to do this one because I want to talk about it. Aetherworks Marvel uh, from Kaladesh. Started the week at six and is unfortunately now eight dollars. And I say unfortunately because, uh, like most people, I glazed over this card at release 
And then I've been hearing whispers from pro for people qualified for the pro tour that uh, Aetherworks Marvel decks are looking real. Um, you can basically generate energy on turns one, two, and three, or turns two and three, slam this on turn four and turn it sideways with the energy you've banked and uh, immediately try and cast an Emrakul or Ulamog on turn four. Um, you know, it's not a guaranteed uh, that you're going to land with that, but the it's extremely difficult to inter- to stop the cards from giving you energy. Your opponent can't really stop that because they're under the battlefield effects, um, and they can't stop Aetherworks Marvel either with with anything other than a counter spell. It's not a creature. It's not summoning stick. Removal won't do it. Um, you don't have to wait for more mana. You hit four mana. You slam Marvel. You tap it. There's nothing they can do except counter it. So um, it seems like it's extremely uh, powerful, and I see this being uh, definitely one of the decks that is going to come out um, at least uh, if it doesn't end up being a big component of standard it's going to be one of the first decks to really get pushed in standard and then we'll see if it's good enough yeah your your compatriot on uh, uh, the cartel aristocats podcast uh, Jim posted a blue green deck that caught my eye on Twitter earlier today where he looked like he was uh, using this to put four copies of Emrakul and or Ulamog out of his deck into play. Um, and I was asking him what turn he was getting that done. And he was saying it was somewhere between turns four and six. Um, it looked like the, the uh, puzzle knots were a big part of that. So I'm very curious to see if that will actually become a thing this standard season. Yeah. I mean, I have a, I have another friend completely disconnected from all of this, who's also qualified. Uh, and like a week ago, he was telling me that this deck was starting to look real. Um, so when I was complaining that this card has risen in price, I was really hoping it would fall by the wayside during this pre-release season. And I could get them at four bucks on the first weekend before it broke out. Um, but unfortunately, the news the news made the rotations. Right. And so because it's a mythic, um, you know, $8 isn't even that much. I mean, if you believe that it's going to be strongly played across multiple decks in standard and might have some potential in modern slash EDH and casual circles, then this could be a future 20 or $25 card. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I agree with you, although in that type of world, I think there's a better tar- a better target for as far as we're concerned than Aetherworks Marvel itself, um, but that we will get to that in segment two. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and uh, and do the next two cards in our top movers list here? Sure. So next on our list, we have doubling cube foils from 10th edition, moving from $11 to 16 for a, a reasonable 45% gain. Um, this was probably on the back of the Against the Odds deck that Saffron posted this week, where he was generating bajillion of mana. Um, doubling cube is an artifact for two mana that for three and a tap lets you double the amount of each type of mana in your mana pool. So if you're doing uh, Braid of Fire shenanigans, uh, this turns into a fun little uh, combo piece. And uh, I, because the it's been a while since we saw foils of this card, it's not a big surprise that uh, a little attention on YouTube was able to push it a little higher. Yeah, yeah. It also, uh, as we'll see later, spiked another card pretty hard. But that's our that's our number one. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's that that saffron effect yep. again, which is which is worth pointing out that even if the deck is raw garbage, which I without having looked, I'm assuming it is, uh, it doesn't matter. Because if people think it's interesting and start buying the cards, even if you sell them at half of what they spike to, you know, doubling. Uh, cube. Well, doubling cube is not a great example, but some of the other cards that like increase by seven or eight hundred percent. Even if you sell those at, at half of that spike, you're still making profit. So you know, cards don't have to be good for you to make money. People just have to think they're good. It's important to remember um, while speculating that the vast majority of Magic is played by people that don't even show up for F and M that are playing mm-hmm. kitchen table Magic, and and that's where most of the money comes from. So. Um, you know, don't be surprised when casual videos on YouTube move cards. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about Soldevi Excavations. Uh, okay. Soldevi Excavations is a land that we've talked about, I think, once or twice before here. It is uh, basically a, a dual land. Um, it taps for one colorless and a blue. Uh, and you have to, I think, sacrifice an untapped land, plain island, island when it comes island, into play. Believe, yeah. Yeah, and you can scry one with it too. Uh, it's a relatively unexciting land, if uh, if not at least useful in EDH, but it is on the reserve list. Um, and I think we've just sort of seen, uh, you know, the initial spike happened 
prices dropped, people were reminded it existed, some copies dried up, and now we're kind of seeing it go through a, a second wave here. Um, so, you know, this this isn't a remarkable card, but it'll still be, you know, five to eight bucks. Well, if I had to guess, I would say whoever targeted it the first time to drive it over six um, targeted it again the second time when it, Came when back it drove down. back down. Yeah, they, there just wasn't that much inventory that got reposted and they figured when it dropped back down to three, they could push it up again. Um, you know, it, I'm not convinced that this this card can hold that price without that constant uh, uh, speculation attention, but I guess we'll see as time goes on. Yeah, and I mean, really, if you're playing blue and EDH, uh, it's hard to get away from this. You know, especially if you have any function... If you're playing Crucible, I mean, it's it's all barely a downside. So um, it's, a, it's a strong utility land. All right. So next on our list, we have Torrential Gear Hulk, one of the Kaladesh Gear Hulks that are making waves in people's standard testing gauntlets. Um, this uh, blue Gear Hulk that lets you do a in- half-decent Snapcaster Mage impression um, on the best instant in your graveyard moved from 550 to $8 this week for $2.50 gain. Um, not bad for a mythic that hasn't uh, had a chance to prove itself yet. And uh, whichever one of these gear hulks ends, ends up being a four of and, you know, more than one of the best decks this fall has a pretty good chance of popping over 20. So figuring out which one that's going to be um, would be a top priority to try to make money on this set. Yeah, yep. It was the same thing with the Titans. And when the Titans passed through standard the first time, uh, they were... They all kind of had their moment in the sun. Um, you know, Primeval Titan was pretty much the the forerunner at all points, but the other four kind of rotated through that second best Titan spot, and there was opportunities to make money on all four. And I, I would expect, you know, the Gear Hawks are working in a slightly shorter time frame, and Magic's a lot different now than it was then. Uh, but but I agree that we're probably in a realm where that's possible. So I would. You know, if we're seeing some of the other Hawks already jump up, um, it might be worth looking back at the ones that have fallen out of favor. Um, I do remember Frost Titan was the one that jumped the hardest originally because nobody cared. Uh, but then they realized that Frost Titan was the best Titan to fight Titans. So if you can peg the best Gear Hulk to fight Gear Hulks, uh, which might be the Cataclysmic one, maybe, or Noxious, uh, that is that might might be where you want to be with that. Yeah, and so, I mean, next on the list we have the other Gear Hulk that's been making movement, uh, Verderous Gear Hulk, which we're going to talk about in our next segment, uh, which has moved from $11 to $17. So, you know, there's a lot of success already baked in on this card, and if it doesn't perform, um, then expect it to fall pretty hard, um, having already gained 55% this week. Um, But as I'm about to tell you in a few minutes, I don't think that's going to be the case. Yeah, I I actually had to go look this up when I saw you put it on here because I'm like 11 to 17. Is that the foil one? But apparently it's not. Um, so I don't like being anywhere near this. I mean, if if the store that I bought mine from handed me my playset of green gear hawks this weekend, I would sell them. <laughs> Just like it's going to be so hard for this card to main, maintain a price tag like that for any ex, um, extended period of time. Because uh, don't forget, Chandra is also in the set. Yep, fair enough. So what's next on our list? Yeah, next is uh, a card I have put into at least one EDH deck, or at least, I'm sorry, at least one casual 60 card deck (laughs) going back ways. Um, New Frontiers. Uh, We're looking at the foil copies from Odyssey. Started the week at about five. It's jumped up to eight. New Frontiers is a Boundless Realms that you can pay X for and that works for all players. Um so it just puts a lot of basic lands in the play across the table. It's a fine card, I guess. If you are super into landfall, uh, it works. As far as I can tell, this is just an ancient foil that's never had a lot of attention. And the last copy or two, um, last couple copies at a lower price probably finally got picked up, maybe in relation to uh, Gitrog. And now, you know, some guy that had posted them at close to 10 bucks just who had just left them there and now his price is a de facto. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the market price is still five bucks. So I don't, I think this is, you know, low stock type of thing. Yep, exactly. All right. So the final card, uh, of the week, uh, on our top movers is, uh, another card that, uh, Saffron seemed to drive through the ceiling, um, on the basis of the madcap experiment deck, uh, he proposed and played, um, so the whole idea here is that Madcap Experiment out of Kaladesh is a sorcery for three and a red. 
you reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal an artifact. You put that card onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom of the library in random order, and then Madcap Experiment deals damage to you equal to the number of cards revealed this way. So obviously you want to have just one really fabulous artifact uh, in your deck, and you want to minimize the damage that you're going to take off of it. So people were, you know, speculating on Platinum Imperion as when this was uh, revealed on the basis that that gives you an 8-8 artifact creature um, where your life total cannot be changed, and as such, you don't take any damage from Madcap Experiment. And to provide some redundancy in that deck, Intervention Pact was uh, was added as a four of. Uh, this is, you know, the the much maligned white pact uh, that has never seen anywhere near as much play as say pact of negation um, with the white pact the next time a source of your choice would deal damage to you this turn you prevent the damage and you gain life equal to the damage prevented so in in the case of intervention pact um, you can at the cost of having to pay one white white uh, at the start of your next upkeep you can basically reverse the damage that platinum imperion would do and give yourself uh, eight life and then your life total can't be changed until they get rid of the platinum imperion um, so that's pretty fun, and we saw the this uh, Future Sight Rare, um, no big surprise, because Future Sight Rares have a long-standing tendency to pop once they find a use, um, and this one moved from $1 to $9 for an 800% gain. Yeah, I've told myself so many times to go back through Future Sight and just buy a bunch of copies of everything that was under a dollar, because its time would come, but I'm lazy and I didn't, but... <laughs> Yeah, th this is absolutely 100% unsustainable. It actually reminded me that I need to go dig mine out and see if I can get rid of them. Um, and it, it did make me look back at the other packs that weren't negation. Um, Summoner's Pact is still around $12, so I do kind of like this card, uh, but not at $12. Um, Slaughter Pact is up in the $8 to $10 range. That could possibly move a little higher. Pact the Titan is under a dollar, though. Uh, I don't know what deck really would want a 4-4 for free on the spot. <laughs> But it is a spell that costs zero, that costs less than a dollar, and has never been reprinted. I don't know. That, that one's tough to turn into a combo piece, I think. And the market yeah. price on Intervention Pack is still at $1.41 on TCG, despite there being very limited inventory. So it leads me to believe that somebody you know, got wind of the deck, decided it was a great spec target, went you know, real deep on it, and uh, it remains to be seen whether they can actually pull any profits out of this one. Yeah, that's very fair. Um, okay, let's move to segment two. I am going to have uh, have you start us off here, James. All right, well, you're, you already kicked this this pick in the nuts, and I think it was uh, a, a fair shot, so let me give you, give oh, you I this. I didn't even realize you had this on. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, all right. <laughs> um, let's start with your earlier comment, which is that Ver Verdurous Gear Hulk is a bad pickup because Mythics are going to have a lot of trouble holding prices near 20 in the face of Masterpieces. Um, Travis is totally right, folks, and you should not be investing in Verderous Gear Hulk at this price unless you've been testing the shit out of this set and you feel like you know what's going on with Standard this fall and, and you're very confident with your testing. Here, here's the premise under which this becomes a $30 card instead of a $20 card. If we have a mythic like Verderous Gear Hulk that ends up being a four of in more than one of the best decks, uh, in the format, uh, then this card can keep climbing. Um, this is the kind of thing that you expect with something like uh, Jace Friend's Prodigy. This is what was predicated for Chandra, and I don't think it's going to come true. Um, my pick is Verderous Gear Hulk and not Chandra, because I think Chandra is definitely going to fall. I don't think she's going to be a four of anywhere. Um, and I don't think that um, she's definitely not going to be a four of in multiple deck styles. Verderous Gear Hulk, on the other hand, uh, is so good in this format based on my testing and testing of people I've talked to that I believe that it has the best shot of most of the mythics uh, of climbing uh, above $20 and staying there for a little while. Um, if you can pick them up at, say, 13 or 14 or get them in trade for something uh, that's already peaked, then I, I think it's a solid shot. If you want to play it a little safer, wait and see what happens at the SCG tournament this weekend and then make your call once you see some camera time. Uh, I, I do agree uh, on the, with, the, with the premise that if Chandra is not strongly played and if Verderous Gearholic is the kind of the breakout card as much as you can break out at $17 of Kaladesh, then it could peak 30 don't debate that at all. I guess my perspective on this is just, um, it, I, you know, I play this on kind of a numbers game. What are the odds of any particular card being that good um, to, to go to jump that much more? It's just kind of like 
almost every time it's not going to happen. So for me, it's easier just to like, yeah, you know, I'm not confident enough in my predictions or other people's predictions to, to, to put the money on the line. Um, but if you have a really good reason to believe that this is the case, that's another story. Uh, so I, I'm just approaching it as just a Verderous Gear Hulk is just another mythic in the set rather than a, this is a card I've been playing with and I think is ridiculous. Yeah. So one of the things that got me, turned me onto this card is something that has potential to go further. Um, first of all, it's been gaining this week on hype. So th- there are enough players that already think it's the, it's, it's the real deal um, to explain why it's gained five bucks. Um, the other thing is that if, if you believe that Chandra is going to go down, and that's the only card over 40 right now, Nisa Vital Force is probably going to be pretty steady around 20. I think that card's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be ever-present, but I think it's only going to be a one or a two of. Um, and if you believe that and then the third most expensive is Virtus Gearhulk. And then after that, we have Sahili Rai and Dovin Bon as the only other mythics over 10 bucks, both of which I think are going to fall um, down into the 8 to $10 range, giving up a little more value that can go into some something else. And then beyond that, we have Smuggler's Copter, which I think could peak as high as 15 and then fall pretty hard um, as a rare. The rest of the mythics are Gearhulks and Aetherworks Marvel. Um, Sky Sovereign console flagship is going to fall for sure. And oh, like beyond all so much, beyond all of that, there's there's really nothing that can hold value in this set. So that might leave us in a situation where Chandra's okay, Nisa's okay, um, Sahili and Dovin are are bad. The other Gear Hulks are seeing some play, but maybe only in one deck. And then the question becomes: Is any any are any of these mythics going to be multi deck four ofs? Um, from what I've seen, from what I've heard, the discussions I've had, I think Verdurous Gear Hulk is the most likely. It could end up being Chandra, but I'm just not seeing the four of Chandra decks yet. It does seem like the uh, the power level of the Mythics it, right now. You know, you have Chandra and the Gearhawks and Marvel um, seem to be at least reasonably close. Um, Chandra does read as the most powerful card in the set. Um, but even still, like between all the Gearhawks and Marvel, there's a lot of cards that could be vying for first place in the set right now, which I think when you look at past sets, like you looked at Elder Moon, it was like th- there were a lot less options, I feel like, or Shadows over Innistrad. Um, so this is a little bit of a trickier format right now to nail down just because the Gearhawks throw five very reasonable mythics into the pot of could be the best card in standard depending on how things break um, I, I mean one of the things that's going on here is is the dynamic around mass removal so we have fumigate which will be the kind of de facto control removal spell on five um, and that does a very good of removing whatever you've got on the board but a lot of the the other black has lost languish and doesn't have a good replacement um, which means that the and and neither does blue and certainly neither does green so that leaves the red cards which include um, Kozilek's return and Gearhulk's a really good way of getting out of range um, of return on at least a couple of creatures. Um, you know, you drop an 8-8 uh, an Trampler on 5, they're, they're not going to be able to do anything uh, about that with any of the red kill spells. Even Hiri's uh, Wrath, unless you're discarding an Emrakul to it, you're not going to be taking care of what happens after that. So that Ooh. means that the, it, you're going to have to go one for one. And Gearhulk's great at spreading counters around and making one for one removal bad. Maybe, uh, maybe Nahiri's Wrath is the secret Aetherworks Marvel tech. Yeah, I mean, who, I, I, I like I, Nahiri's Wrath has been performing reasonably well in testing for me, but it depends what you're playing against. Yeah, it, it, yeah. when you're playing against really big stuff, uh, the pressure is on you to discard a, a very valuable resource. When you're playing against mid-range decks that have three, four, five toughness, it's been very good. Um, against the even smaller decks, it's excellent. Um, especially when you're, you know, discarding something like uh, fiery uh, temper, uh, dealing three to everything and dealing another three to something. I mean, that that can be excellent. But yeah, you know, the overarching point is that the the mass removal is relatively weak right now, and Gear Hulk gives you a good way to get around it. You know, we'll see how this plays out. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, okay, so now I think we have back to back picks that uh, are are basically shared between us. I think. James probably loaded up the spreadsheet intending to write down the card that I had already put in here, which is Emrakul, the promised end. Uh, I've got this on short to mid. I'm like a seven to eight. I feel like I've I've moved up on this over the course of the day. Uh, The one from Eldritch Moon, of course. Right now, copies are available pretty close to 15. If you use the eBay uh, $15 off coupon, that's good until, uh, well, by the time you listen to this podcast, it's probably not good anymore. Um, But you can score these for around $15 to $16 a piece. I think this is uh, a a 
pretty likely jump to thirty dollars um, based on uh, n- not just Aetherworks Marvel, uh, which will which will play this card as a four of because there's nothing you know Aetherworks Marvel that type of card wants you to say says play the absolute hugest spell you can possibly cast to make this worth it. That's Emrakul. Um, but also we saw Emrakul as a top end for so many strategies last for uh, you know over the the past standard since since Eldritch Moon released. Um, it's just it was just all over the place, and it's still the biggest thing you can be doing in standard at the start of this coming season. So I really would be surprised if Emrakul does not make a strong push upwards. And you know, if this first Star City open brings camera time where people are flipping Emrakul with Aetherworks Marvel, prices are going to start to move. And if people show up at the Pro Tour with either Aetherworks Marvel decks or seven out of the eight top eight decks are playing Emrakul, that also looks very good for his price. Yeah, I mean, we're in full agreement here. Like you, I used the free $15 coupon to get these for 12 bucks tonight on eBay. And uh, this will be the second time I'm riding the Emrakul Promised End Wave. Um, <laughs> at Pro Tour Eldritch Moon, uh, I bought 10 or 15 copies at or in and around 10 or $12 and flipped them for 20 to 25 a couple days later. Um, the, the card then floated back down um, as inventory flooded the marketplace, but now we're getting another chance to drive it back up. And it's already showing up on MTG stocks uh, at 20 bucks. Um, and I think it's very, very likely that we see this in at least two styles of decks, something around uh, Aetherworks Marvel and something around Teamer Emerge. Um, it's also possible that there's a Jund Emerge deck that's worth playing, and all of those those decks are going to be running two to four copies of Emrakul. Uh, very, very good chance of of peaking over twenty to twenty five dollars and making picking up copies closer to ten. But very worthwhile. Yeah, let's not forget that uh, Thopter Copter is uh, Smuggler's Copter is also very good with Emrakul because it is an artifact and it also lets you loot to make Emrakul cheaper. Pretty inter and helps you find your one or two copies. Very interesting. Um, well, yeah, I ended up picking up this time. I was just this time I picked up six Emrakuls. Um, but if we see this continue to fall uh, through the next week or so, I will keep start picking more up at the you know thirteen range. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're going to see it fall. I think everybody is on this train tonight, uh, and there's, we're going to see this uh, land over twenty leading into the weekend. And if the Star City results show a lot of Emrakuls on camera, it's going to set up shop closer to twenty five. The um, the other cool thing about Copter, right, is that you don't necessarily have to... You, you can actually discard the first Emrakul in your hand that you're not ready to cast yet and get it later back later with Grapple from, uh, from with the past. Grapple with the past? Yeah. Um, so you can basically just, you know, dump it to the graveyard as an incidental uh, resource uh, dump and then get it back later when you need it. Isn't there like a four or five mana reanimate in, four, in the standard right now, too? They just printed something. I know there's that six mana black one that gets two creatures back, but that might be rotating. So you could play, uh, you could no, play no, no. your Emrakul deck. What? Ever Ever After is still in the format and because uh, it's a Shadows of Innistrad card. Okay. So you could play your Emrakul deck that looks to cast Emrakul for seven or eight mana, but also has a backdoor reanimate Emrakul off of loot copter i don't know we got options upon options here buddy <laughs> all right what's your next card so i realized that reality smashers were available like somewhere in and around three dollars to 350 um they're not they're not going to be part of this standard from everything i've seen so far um but they are very much uh, a four of uh, staple in modern and legacy and uh, as a rare from Oath of the Gatewatch, which I still maintain was probably uh, opened less than it was planned to be. Um, I think this is a future $10 card in modern. Um, Bantel Drazi looks like it's here to stay. It's not too broken. It's a, a very solid mid- mid-range deck that's going to be around for a while. And uh, I think Reality Smasher posts up at $10 in about two years. Uh, yeah, I mean, I- I'm not convinced that it's not going to be a part of standard either. Uh, but, I- but I do agree. I mean, the only reason I didn't put any Eldrazi on my cards to watch this week is because I feel like I've done it every week prior. Um, but I, I think they're all, they're all golden. They're, they're all over modern these days. Uh, and they're all from, from Eldritch Moon, which is lower supply. So I am hundred percent there with you on reality smasher. Yeah. I mean, overall I like Eldrazi displacer and thought not see better than I like reality smasher because there's an extra deck um, that we're going to mm-hmm. talk about in segment four um, that plays both of those in modern. Um, but Reality Smash is still uh, the truth in both modern and legacy. Yeah, so let's see. We talked about Thought Not Seer in episode 33, Displacer in episode 32. <laughs> uh, I think it popped up. I'm missing some notes here. Uh, oh, there's Thought Not Seer again in 29. <laughs> so we definitely like our Eldrazi. <laughs> and, and and sets that don't, ha- don't have masterpieces are going to have a very different 
uh, price appreciation profile than sets that do in the next three to five years. Yeah, that's why I'm really interested in Eldritch Moon cards right now. It was a small set. It was pr- probably opened less than um, you know we would we might want it if it been, but it's the only set in standard that's not going to have these expeditions hanging over its head. Um, so you really got a recipe here for very strong uh eldritch moon and soi cards yeah well, i mean shadows doesn't have that problem either but shadows was a big set and it was a yeah. and it was a spring set and i think you're absolutely right to point out that you know eldritch moon being the, the replacement for the summer slot uh wizards has long kind of alluded to the fact that the summer slot is the weakest and sells the worst and in this case they followed it up so quickly with conspiracy 2 that i i have trouble believing that this isn't the the you know second least open set of the year after conspiracy 2 yeah, and it, and really, Eldritch Moon was pretty packed in retrospect, pretty packed with power, um, yeah, powerful that, cards. So, get some good cards here as we're gonna, okay. as we're gonna discuss. Yep. All right. Um, yeah, the spell. So my next, the next card I had in here, I wasn't sure about. I have Spell Queller written down. I'm not positive how I feel about this at the moment. I, you know, I didn't really get a, a chance to think too much more about this, but you know, they're like five bucks right now, um, and this card was a very big part of the most recent standard with Collected Company. Obviously, Collected Company is rotating, so this card loses part of its enabler, but this is still a really good card, and Reflector Mage is still legal. And I think this is the type of thing that's it's not as sexy as it was uh, a couple months ago when it was new and interesting, and now we're looking at all these crazy artifact stuff. But this is still going to do a really good job of, uh, of beating stuff up. And it does stop Aetherwork, uh, Aetherworks, Aetherwork Marvel. So... Yeah, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop Gear Hulks, uh, but it stops like probably every other card in the Gear Hulk deck. And it would be pretty brutal to spell Queller and Hero's Wrath. Not that anyone's really playing it, but you know, if it ever got popular, Queller is a good answer to it. So, you know, we're, we're seeing this down in the five, four to five dollar range. Um, and again, as an Eldritch Moon card, I could see this jumping to at least ten dollars or more. So maybe not run out and buy it today, but I have no trouble trading for these if you're at your local store. And if prices, you know, if we don't see a lot of it in the first week and prices get down in the 2 to $3 range, I wouldn't mind picking them up there. Yeah, I mean, the, the short-term question here is whether Bant is still a deck in standard. Um, a lot of people I've been talking to that have been running testing gauntlets have said they don't think it is, um, that Bant is significantly weaker without collected company and may not have a good reason to exist. Um, so it might be, Spellcaller may have trouble finding uh, a, a play pattern in standard, but it is getting tested in multiple uh, deck styles in modern, um, often as a two or a three of. So it does potentially have a modern future. And if that's the case, then, you know, looking for it to fall down into this reality smasher uh, range, like the two to three dollar range for a recent rare, uh, would make it a lot more appealing to me. Yeah, well, you know, I I, I agree. Ban is it's very possible that Ban's not going to be as good as it was. Uh, clearly, with that collected company, but you know, it's it's only a blue white card. There's no green in the mana cost, so we could see it in Azorius decks. We could see it in Esper decks or what have you. So, um, you know, the deck might not be the same, but the card's still available. All right, so I've got two picks. Uh, one that I think Travis will have no problem with. Uh, Etherworks Marvel Foils. Um, confidence level of seven for the mid to long term. Um, if this card ends up being a big deal in standard, then you're probably going to have trouble getting in at my target price, which would be somewhere in the $10 to $12 range. Um, I think these foils go over $20 um, sooner or later, um, You know, whether it's standard or modern or casual demand. Um, and I, I'm not rushing out to buy them now where they're typically posted around $14 or $15. I'm going to wait and look for a lower price. If it never shows up, so be it. I'll, I'll let it uh, continue on its merry way and look for better options. Um but yeah, I mean, if this gets anywhere near $10, especially since it's a mythic and not a rare, um, I'm all over these foils. Yeah, yeah, I am, I'm right there with you. I, I think my concern, my only concern here is that I feel like Aetherworks Marvel is going to be a card that either comes out of the gate, uh, if not within the first two weeks by the Pro Tour, blazing, and it just takes off, and you, you miss your opportunity, and the opportunity is already gone, or it doesn't, and it never gets there. Um, that is my biggest concern with this at the moment. Um, it is is not that the card's not good. It's just that I feel like we're going to know right away. Well, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that's interesting here is that it, it doesn't rely only on energy cards. Uh, a lot of the synergy with, with Aetherwork Marvel is about mass sacrifice effects. So some of the modern decks that have been proposed revolve around Greater Gargadon and no other ways to create energy. Um, so 
that, hmm. that, that represents open-ended synergy. Down the road, if you get a couple of more reliable mass sacrifice effects that play well with Greater Gargadon, um, then Marvel gets better and better. Um, so that's yeah, part you, of what's you, got my attention. That's, that's fair. And I, I guess I hadn't really been thinking about it too much um, in that regards. I was thinking of it from this kind of energy perspective. But the, the idea that you could play this on four or something and then follow it up with a wrath and take out two or three of your own permanents uh, and then untap with this engine kind of in place or uh, or with the greater Gargadon thing in modern does does make it interesting. So I, I take it back. I, for, I kind of forgot about that text, um, which mean, also means you can slot this into an EDH deck without any energy cards and eventually get paid off with it um, just from losing your permanent. So, so you know, I, I, I like this more than I did when we started the segment. Yeah, I mean, the thing the thing with the modern implications is that it could bring restore balance decks to the forefront because... Oh, God, please. Yeah, because Greater Gargadon sacks a bunch of permanents, then you cast Restore Balance, and Aetherworks Marvel brings you back into the game with whatever crazy thing you find off the top of the deck. Oh, please make Restore Balance good. <laughs> all right, so after all of those those picks, I have one final pick, and I think it uh, trumps all the rest. So before you spend any money on any, any of my other picks, at least, um, definitely go after this one, because I feel this is the, the first nine or so I've had in a while. Um, uh, the pick is... Uh, well, let, let's start with a question. Do you guys know what card has quietly made its way into the top 25 creatures in Modern? Uh, is being played roughly as much as cards like Mox Opal, Abrupt Decay, Lightning Helix, and Cranial Plating. Um, I know, I know. It is a mythic <laughs> and is showing up in two prominent mid-range decks that are likely to be around for quite some time in the format. Um, the answer to that question is Grim Flayer, um, a card that I, myself and many other people in MTG Finance slept on for too long, I think. Um, foils for Grim Flayer as a mythic out of Eldritch Moon are already sitting at about $30. But if you think about this in context, it's been a long time since Modern saw uh, a mythic card printed for the first time that became a four of in multiple decks. Um, and other cards like, say, Liliana uh, of the Veil um, that are played, uh, you know, a, a little more, but at, at roughly equivalent levels, their foils are, you know, well over $100, $200, uh, $300 for some of these really important foil mythics in the format. And at $30, this is, it's potential, there's potential here that this is a, a bargain. Um, I, I see the target for this, these foils being somewhere in the $60 range if it continues to perform in the format. And what's really got my attention is that despite the fact that this card basically just came out a couple months ago, there is almost no inventory. When I went hunting around for these, I found less than 25 listings left on TCG, ranging, you know, anywhere from $30 to $60. Um, I looked around in Canada, we're basically sold out. Um, cardmarket.eu um, doesn't have any copies less than the equivalent of about 50 or 55 US. And, you know, Japanese and Russian foils are taking off. Um, all of which leads me to believe that, uh, you know, acquiring, you know, 5, 10, 15 copies of this at $30 is likely to be worth something like a, a minimum a $20 bill sometime in the next year or so. Well, I feel like there's not a lot I can add to that, except to tell you that I am poking around on TCG Player, adding a couple of copies to my cart at the moment. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I back w when Return the Ravnica was around, um, I bought a bunch of foil abrupt decays at $30, uh, and then they jumped to like 60 or 70. And that was a green black, two, you know, great spell, very strong and modern, and showed up in Legacy. Uh, and that was a foil that went from 30 to 70 and that was a rare. So we're talking about a mythic from a much smaller set. I mean, there is way less Eldritch Moon out there relative to Abrupt Decay. And it, it really struck me when I, I noticed in your show notes that it was played as often as Mox Opal. And it's like, dang, foil Mox Opals are definitely more than 30 bucks. Now you see Mox Opal and Legacy as well, but, um, yeah, and as you're going to see, Grim Flare shows up in quite a few of the WMCQ decks from this weekend as well. Uh, so I, I think this is a great idea. I mean, I'm putting them in my cart. I can't give you a much stronger 
uh, <laughs> endorsement than that. Yeah. I mean, folks, when, when you're listening to this podcast and you realize that you listened to it a couple days later than our pro trader members that pay $5 a month um, to get early access, think about how much money we potentially could have made you um, when you go looking for Grim Flayer foils and you can't find any at 30 anymore. Um, definitely worth a thought uh, the next time you're looking over our offering. Um, so that's my last pick of the week. Let's move on to the metagame week in review. Uh, yeah. So we have three WMCQs this weekend, uh, Hong Kong, Scotland, and the Philippines. Um, I, the, the, uh, you know, I'll start with this is, uh, there was an Abzan mid range deck in the top eight of all three events. I see, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, it had three, um, Grim Flare in Scotland at one with four Grim Flare and two lists showed up in the Philippines. The uh, second and like fifth also had three Grim Flares. So there's the Grim Flares we're talking about. Yeah. Um, ten four, ten four. Yep. So the other thing that jumped out at me was, uh, we saw a blue white death and taxes list with, uh, some Eldrazi and guys of St. Traft and mall drifter over in Hong Kong, um, and four spell queller. And, uh, I, I kind of almost fell out of my chair when I saw this, a red green Ponza deck took second in Scotland, um, with four Inferno Titan, four bonfire of the Dan, four, Monvoli, Monvoli, Acid Moss. Uh, there's a card that you will all have to go look up. Um, and four Stone Rain. Stone Rain. I love this card. I have foils of this just sitting there waiting to be cast. Uh, and four Blood Moon. So some some very interesting stuff floating around in modern right now. I would love to see Bonfire of the Damned take off. Yeah, I've had my. I've been thinking about that one. You know, I haven't put it in any of our uh, cards to watch list yet, but I have been thinking about that card. Yeah, so let's go back to the WMCQ in Hong Kong. First place was taken by the same deck I played last night at Wednesday Night Modern um, with a few changes. Um, this is the uh, white-black Eldrazi Hate Bears list that's been floating around, um, I think uh, primarily driven uh, by some mostly Asian players. Um, but I had, let, let's put it this way, I, I'm not a great modern player. I only play occasionally. I usually play janky decks that um, are not in the top tiers of the format. Um, I found this list from a Japanese player maybe two months ago, put the deck together and hadn't had a chance to even like shuffle it once um, or draw a sample hand. Went to Wednesday Night Magic here in Toronto at Face to Face, which is a fairly competitive scene, and went 3-0-1-1. <laughs> um, and... Very much enjoyed the look of consternation that was typically on the face of my opponent when they realized that Flicker Wisp was going to mess up their game plan by taking Thing in the Ice or Pyromancer's Ascension off the table at an inopportune time. Um, Leonin Arbiter was causing trouble having people, uh, you know, with people that wanted to search or use Eldritch Evolution or cast Court of Calling. And Selfless Spirit was interfering with, um, you know, burn spells and destroy effects. Um, and Thought Not Seer uh, was well out of range for most of their kill spells. I mean, this this deck does a lot of work. And being able to go Path to Exile into Wasteland Strangler is especially satisfying in Modern. Um, this, is a, this is a deck people should be looking for if they're into something that has a lot of play, that helps, uh, that gives you a lot of um, growth curve um, in terms of your, your playability, because it's very, you know, it... it, it uh, rewards people who understand the format very well. And I, I think we're going to continue to see these decks do well. And that's why I was pointing out earlier that Eldrazi Displacer and Thought Unseer are probably a little better than Reality Smasher because they show up in both the Bant Eldrazi and the Hate Bear lists. And those are two very different decks that both have a chance at, at strong success. And indeed, in this list for Hong Kong, we saw Bant Eldrazi in uh, fifth and the Hate Bear list in first, both rocking a whole bunch of Eldrazi. Yep. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Thought Not Seer, I think, is... Uh is definitely going to be um, at the very least a greater part of modern going, you know, over, over months and years, you'll see that just show up in all sorts of lists because it's just such a, a useful bridge card. And uh, the same with displacer just is, is so good at annoying the hell out of people um, and interfering with their game plan in ways that they may not have uh, intended for it to as well. I mean, the whole, uh, the whole pattern with Flicker Wisp and Displacer where you get to take a Thought Not Seer and the Thought Not Seer is significantly better than the Tide Ho Hollow Scholar because the Scholar um, gives them the exact card back that you took. But the Thought Not Seer, as people probably remember, um, gets rid of the card permanently. So if you're playing against something like Scape Shift, you kind of get it, you know, if you're on the play, you often get to take the first Scape Shift out of their hand with Thought Not Seer. And then it, once you get Displacer or Flicker Wisp online, you can start doing it again in their upkeep, um, sometimes via Ether Vial. 
um, so that you can kind of instant speed get rid of the thing you don't want to deal with in their main phase. It's it's, uh, it's a very powerful play pattern. Yeah, I mean, thought not seeing, seeing thought not seeing your jund opponent doesn't feel exciting, but doing it to your escape shift opponent is just uh, is useful. It's very useful. <laughs> yeah, agreed. So uh, very interesting decks. Um, I, I find it confusing when people say that they don't think modern is a healthy format. Um, I understand that at the top, top tiers where they are strongly motivated to play the fastest, most aggressive deck possible right now, that that is uh, a very true statement. But I think that at these kind of like lower levels of competition, everything from Friday Night Magic up into these WMCQs, we're seeing tons of innovation. And I think the format still feels wide open for things to break out. Yeah, especially lately. Um, you know, there are definitely periods where modern is a little drier, I think. Um, but as of late, uh, it does seem like every set has really given some interesting tools to the format. Um, and it still hasn't decided where it is yet. And I mean, it wasn't just that even lo- that long ago that Ari Lax, it was a week and a half ago, Ari Lax posted like a 5-0 constructed, or, uh, constructed modern league with uh, Restore Balance. Um, and I know, and you know, I come back to this card because I really want it to pop. Um, but it, it, it did really well, like out of nowhere and we don't see it anywhere in the WMCQs. Now, does that mean the deck is bad? Well, maybe it just means it hasn't found time, hasn't quite found its legs. It hasn't found its audience. So I, I just think that there, for all of the diversity we see in the format, there are still other decks that are very playable that just don't quite get there for whatever reason. And then one day do. Um, and Grishelbrand, you know, Grishelbrand is a good example of that because that the, those card that deck existed in the format and did nothing for a while, and then suddenly won a GP or whatever it was. So uh, there, there's a lot that format's deeper than it looks, and Wizards has done a good job of of changing it up a little bit every every set. All right, so let's move on to our topic of the week. We've got a couple of little uh, uh, segments for you here. Um, first, we're going to talk about the Frontier format that was uh, has been proposed by Haruya, um, the major magic shop in Tokyo that's probably the premier uh, online store out of Japan um, and one of the kind of uh, basically the Star City games of, of Tokyo, if you will. So the uh, yep. the idea here is that they they're proposing an alternative format that is somewhere between standard and modern. This one starts from M15 forward, so you basically get Magic 2015, you get Cons block, and then everything that we've had since then. Um, what's your first impression of this format that they're proposing? Um, well, I, I, so I have to look at this with two different sets of glasses. On the one hand, as a player, it seems amusing to me. Um, I, I like the idea of getting to explore new modern-esque formats, um, you know, and trying to dig to find the cool decks, the combos or the synergy that that nobody quite figured out yet or didn't crack. So the brewer in me loves the idea of this. But, excuse me, the person who buys and sells magic cards uh, sees virtually zero opportunity here. Um, they're starting very late, which means that there are humongous quantities of all of the cards and all of these sets. So you'd have to have a huge volume of players getting in the front here to really start to budge the prices. Um, and then add to the fact that right now this is just in Japan, right? So even let's just imagine for a minute, this takes off in Japan and it's really popular over there. You still got to find people to sell these cards to, and there's nobody in America buying them yet. So you would really need like star city to pick this up. Um, which I just, I don't see happening. Uh, you know, unless you can qualify for the pro tour with the, with the format, there's, it's got to have a really interesting angle to draw players into it. Um, and you know, right now it's EDH. EDH is really the only other format other that, that, that doesn't qualify, qualify you for the Pro Tour that can really drive prices. Uh, and I don't think Frontier is, is, could possibly be as pop, popular as EDH. Yeah, I, I'm a strong believer that Constructed Magic can only support two uh, competitive and one non-competitive format at a time. Um, in the non-competitive sphere, Commander decks dominate and are likely to dominate for quite some time. They have the added angle of community multiplayer games, um, the and the fact that the that most of the cards are non-rotating, uh, and so and bannings are relatively rare. And so, people that have put a lot of time and effort into building multiple Commander decks are very very unlikely to switch to some new casual format for no reason. They've already got a place uh, to play all their old cards from Standard. Um, and then Wizards has made it very clear that 
even modern is not of particular interest to them. I mean, modern's not a pro tour format anymore. Uh, standards where it's at. Standard was shortened from 24 months to 18 months. And all of this is about selling the most recent product. So the idea that Wizards would get behind this format and try to sell product from three, four years ago does not make any sense and is not going to happen anytime soon, no matter how well it does at Haruya in Japan. And those guys are have put down some very, very good prize uh, support for the first tournament they're going to run, um, I think, this week or next week. Um, the, the tournament's going to give 10 boxes of recent sets uh, to the winner, which is pretty cool. It's almost a $1,000 prize for a brand new untested format. So they, they are clearly interested in trying to make it work. It's unclear to me whether this is about them trying to clear out a lot of old product that they have lying around or that there was actual you know, demand from the player base, you know, feedback that they received that suggested that this would be successful locally. Um Overall, I think it's got less potential globally than, say, something like Tiny Leaders did. Um, and, you know, that collapsed pretty quickly. Um, I'm a strong believer that we will, in fact, get a replacement format for Modern sometime in the next three to four years. I think we're going to get to the point where Modern Master sets have caught up to the point where reprinting makes any sense. And it's just going to be a good time, um, you know, around, you know, in that time range to just hit the reset button and and generate some a bunch of fresh interest at the retailer level for some cards that are kind of sitting around. It's the kind of thing that could drive sales on cards like Jace Friends Prodigy. Um, so, uh, I think it's going to happen, but I don't think it's going to happen like this. It's very strange to me. Um, we talked about this off camera, um, about the, you know, that they chose M15 as opposed to say something like return to Ravnica. I mean, return to Ravnica, I'm on, you know, have been under the impression for some time. And I think you would agree that that's kind of where the overprinting problem started, where they, you know, we'd gone through three or four years of extremely strong player growth, where, you know, we added 80 to 100% more players um, globally, and then all of a sudden things really slowed down. And, you know, wouldn't you think, Travis, that Return to Ravnica would be a better place to to kind of draw the line if this is the kind of thing you were trying to do to address uh, overprinting of, of cards and overabundance? Yeah, I mean, it does definitely seem like the natural inclusion, um, at least from that perspective. I guess if you were thinking about the format beyond just um, if you're thinking about the health of the format rather than the numbers involved, I could see going with Return the Ravnica or skipping Return the Ravnica because you missed the shocks which means there are no shocks in your format. And we haven't had a format without a shock fetch land base in quite some time. Um, although they would show up again eventually. Um, it also, I believe they start with Magic 2015, which is the introduction of the Hollow logo, which means that um, essentially it is the most counterfeit proof format. But again, I don't think Hallelujah really cons- I, I really spent that much time thinking about it, honestly, or at least like these didn't factor that heavily into their decision. Um, it's possible that they just went and said, well, you know, M15 has a little hollow thing on the bottom uh, that makes us a really good cutoff point. Uh, so let's just go with that. Yeah, so a, a strange format. It'll be interesting to see how it develops. I don't think it's going to have much immediate impact. If it really took off in Japan, there might be a cross-border arbitrage opportunity. Um, but, you know, I, I have to see, uh, I want to see some pull on the demand side from Japan before I'm going to get in on that. Yeah, I agree. It's just it's just one of these things where it's like, yeah, maybe there's money here somewhere for somebody, but it's just not worth your time. You know, when you look at something like Grim Flare Foils at 30 bucks, it's just like, wow, that is just so much a better use of my time and resources than whatever Frontier may hold. All right. So the other thing we're going to do is I think next week we're going to try to have a guest on uh, to talk about all of the Magic Online changes that were announced today. But we're just going to do a brief overview here. Um, There was a couple of like pretty big announcements um, that that seem to have likely to create a large impact on the Magic Online economy. Um, So basically what's gone down, if I can summarize, is that we're moving from a situation where the cost of entering draft and sealed leagues is going to be reduced, I think from 15 tickets to 12 tickets for drafts. And I think it was from 30 tickets to 24 tickets um, for sealed leagues. So people that are involved in uh, the limited formats online will certainly be pretty excited about that. Um, But some of the queues are now going to uh, no longer be paying out in packs. And instead, they're going to be paying out um, in these things called treasure chests. And treasure chests will will contain one of the following, a curated card, a modern set rare, 
or a mythic rare, or a number of play points. And most treasure chests will additionally contain two standard set commons or uncommons, but they may be replaced as follows. Um, one in 4.5 treasure chests will have one of the standard legal common or uncommon slots replaced with either a curated card or a modern set rare or mythic rare. And one in 239 treasure chests will have both of the standard legal common or uncommon slots replaced with either a curated card or a modern set rare or mythic rare. I mean, could this have been any more confusing? You guys got all that right. Like, just we're we're all you could just intu- you can just intuit what might be in your pack now. We're all I, I, on top I, of that. Yeah, I mean, I've been researching this all day, and I still don't know what's in these these stupid treasure chests. I mean, it, it's just ridiculous. It's it's a huge obviously um, the MTGO team uh, looking for ways to balance uh, you know the reduced cost of the limited environment that they wanted to create. I think that's where this is all coming from. Um, they were looking at their stats. They're looking at how successful the leagues have been, and they have been very successful. Everybody's very happy with the ability to kind of play when they want to play um, and still draft in open sealed pools as per normal. That's That's been a tremendous improvement across the board for Magic Online. And now they're trying to set up shop to figure out how they can better support that. And they've looked at other you know card games like Hearthstone and so forth and the way that prizes are distributed and they're thinking oh well here's a really cool way that we could get conspiracy and or um uh you know other relevant cards in into formats um, or into circulation without actually releasing those sets online but this this seems very strange to me so like imagine a card for legacy something like sanctum prelate um or um that new is it imperial recruiter the one that uh uh, can go get uh, creature. Imperial, Imperial Recruiter is the original one. This is uh, Recruiter of the Guard. Right, right, I right. Believe. So both of those cards are, are potentially very important in Legacy, and people have been very frustrated, not able to uh, test for um, you know Legacy formats online with these cards because you know the the format is now completely out of sync with the real world, and the solution is is prize packs where you have to play limited to get access to Legacy cards. Yeah, I I like the fact, uh, yeah, aside from that aspect of this, I like the fact that there are no inventions in Kaladesh on Moto. So that means that players who are drafting on Moto to prepare for the Pro Tour are essentially playing a different format because they never have to play around inventions in Moto, but they will in the real world unless at the Pro Tour they decide to pull inventions from the packs. But I don't think they're going to because those are going to make for pretty splashy games where somebody slams a sword or something. So the whole thing is just so odd. Yeah, and they said that curated cards are non-premium, including both Zendikar Expeditions and Kaladesh Inventions, with the same same exception for rares from 8th edition and 9th edition, which will remain premium. I mean, this whole thing is just a clusterfuck of, of confusion and a very, very strange way to be distributing uh, cards that are necessary in certain formats. Um, and this isn't even the end of it. There's more to this. So the other when big I, part... Wait, Wait, when I read that, when I'm like, wait, so some of the cards are foil and others weren't like I had to read that three times. I'm like, I think that's what this means, but I, I don't play enough motor to know for sure. But what? <laughs> and yeah. And the thing is that expeditions and masterpieces have so much less impact on on moto because these things are not redeemable. You, you're, you still can't trade these in for real versions of the card. So they just don't matter. I mean, the only people that are going to care about these are people that are really interested in the alternate art. It might be a small badge of honor if you won them in some you know major online tournament. But otherwise, it, it is dramatically less impressive than it is in paper. Now, there's even more to this. So as people might know, if they've you know ever participated in the Magic Online economy, um, if you collect a full set of a, a, of a given standard legal set, you typically have something like 16 to 18 months within which you can redeem that set for a paper version. And it used to cost five bucks and now it costs $25. And that's one of the ways that I think that a lot of the bots um, you know, try to make some money is that they, you know, end up with full sets and they can, they can redeem them and they will also sell people sets so that they can redeem them. And people that play really, really heavily, like my father, who's a complete addict on Magic Online, um, end up with three or four redeemed sets and Jeez. that they collect over the course of, you know, dozens or hundreds of drafts. Now, the weird thing here is now they're announcing that part of, I'm assuming, how they're paying for the reductions on the limited side is they're going to cut the redemption profile um, period down from, you know, eight a year and a half or basically 
as long as I said is standard legal and a little beyond to like basically three to six months. So starting with Kaladesh, Kaladesh will only be legal for redemption until the next major set. So that will be Anamket in the spring um, becomes legal for redemption, which I believe will be a month after it's released. So Kaladesh starts in like middle of October on Magic Online. And by April, you'll no longer be able to redeem it. And for Ether Revolt, the follow-up set, it also will only be redeemable until uh, Anamket comes online. So it's also only redeemable from like basically February through to April. So those small sets only get three months for redemption. That's very strange um, and yeah. is likely to have major ripple effects on the, the, the economics of running bots and the economics of investing in Magic Online. Yeah, and I mean, this is even going to trickle into paper magic because now you don't have this, uh, you know, there's a a non-zero amount of product that moves from Moto into the real world because of those redemptions Um, and shortening those so dramatically is really going to change the kind of prolonged supply that you see in the real world. You know, it's, it's, you would have a better sense of how much that product hits paper than I do. Um, But I mean, it's, it's some percentage right like i mean it's not it's not nothing it's 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 thousands of sets so like uh a set like kaladesh may end up with my guess would be a few thousand sets redeemed um and and a lot of that it takes place uh is done by businesses and done by bot chains my guess would be because they're the ones who end up with that kind of high volume of cards and there's a lot of motivation if you're running a bot chain and you have a store which is the case for a lot of the bot chains um, that, you know, if you have excess digital product, you may as well turn it into physical products so you can sell it at your stores. Um, because, you know, uh, so there, there's usually a fairly large gap that the $25 redemption fee, um, that is in excess of the $25 redemption fee. So there's usually a way to commit arbitrage between digital and paper product and still make a little bit of money. And it's also nice to, you know, if you redeem four sets, you have full play sets of every card in the set, and you you can kind of measure what, you know, how fast you're going to be able to sell those at retail. It's, it's predictable. Whereas popping a bunch of boxes at, you know, low to mid volume, you're not necessarily going to have the same predictability, and you don't exactly know what you're going to get out of it. So there's all of that. There's also the fact that, like, one of the things that I've been doing, and I, I manage almost 10,000 tickets, um... Uh, under invest, investment on Magic Online and have for about a year and a half. Um, one of the things I've been doing that's been very consistent has been uh, investing in online foils um, that eventually spike, you know, six to nine months later when the set is, people are looking to redeem foil sets. Um, but they, you know, because foils online are basically worthless. Like often they are worth less than the, the quote unquote non-foil versions. Um, but if you want to get foils and paper, those are often worth quite a lot. So, you know, a, a really good set could be worth, you know, three or $400, $500 in foil and might be worth a lot more down the road. Um, so redeeming full sets in foil it has been attractive, but you often have to wait around. Under this new method, uh, it's quite likely that foils will spike a lot sooner and then the entire set, foils and non-foils, should crash pretty hard right after redemption. And the weird thing here is that a lot of these recent sets were already um, experiencing you know, um, uh, a very hollow uh, price profile. Like BFC sets are, are down in the like 30 to 40 ticket range or something like that. Um, and that's not going to get any better in this new scenario. I mean... I, I saw a lot of the major bot chains expressing concern and frustration, and I'm very, very uh, concerned with how this is going to play out for people that are trying to make money on Magic Online. It, it does. It, yeah, this is one of those things that, you know, from from my perspective, and I think a lot of the people that are listening to this cast, we're just sort of like, yeah, there's a change, but we don't know how to process this. But I would imagine if, you know, if you're one of these bot chains, this has got to be huge deal this is like reevaluate and figure out whether your business model is still profitable type of thing well and, and the suspicion that a lot of people have i think that are that are in that boat is you know is wizards trying to maneuver into a position where bots just don't exist um are they going to squeeze the bots out through a series of decisions over a period of time um and potentially move to uh, uh an economy that doesn't have um uh 
the same anything near to the same dynamics um are they going to move to a situation where the only person you're ever purchasing cards from is wizards um if you if anybody has played hearthstone or some of the other hearthstone clones that have popped up over the last couple of years you'll be aware of the concept of dust to create things which is basically you know you earn cards through playing the game and you can destroy those cards to get dust and then you can use dust to build cards that you want um it would not surprise me in the slightest if the wizards was you know uh in a complete lack of creativity, simply trying to move towards an emulation of those kind of marketplaces um, and and looking to do that in the next three to five years. It has always been odd to me that Wizards allows for uh, bots to exist. I was actually a little surprised, I think, when I first looked at Moto that that was around and like there was kind of support and that uh, the Moto team worked with them sort of to make sure that they weren't getting that their products still worked. So um, yeah, I mean, I can completely see wizards trying to throw these guys off of their platform, uh, especially if they ever want to, you know, they have the dust, but you could also talk about rolling out other sales venues as well, or implementing a centralized marketplace, which I mean, frankly is what Moto should have, right? Like there's no reason whatsoever for bots to exist because they should just make Moto look like uh, steam. Um, if you've ever used Steam and uh, bought and sold items in like Team Fortress 2 or CSGO or one of or I think, uh, you know, Dota 2 is probably the big one that a lot of players would be familiar with. You know, that's the model that Moto should be following. So uh, bots have no place in, in that in that world, really. Um, so maybe they are trying to kind of like soften these guys up and make them make, you know, get them to a position where instead of just being blindsided by the uh, application of a centralized marketplace, they sort of push them to the edge so that when that announcement comes, they aren't quite as uh, harmed by it. I, I don't know. I mean, we, it, we, you know, we're not inside the Moto team's head here. I mean, it's also strange. It also feels like they're trying to disincentivize people from playing constructed online. Um, and I think that business-wise makes a lot of sense and people should be worried about it. The, the reality is that Wizards makes a lot more money when you have to buy cards to play, which is what Limited is. And constructed is buy cards, and then six months later, you're still playing with the same cards. Um, and if you need more of them, you're getting them from the secondary market, like the bots, not from them. That's not that's not good for wizards. <laughs> it's much better if there's no constructed and there and everybody's playing limited, right? So it's it's not it's unfortunate, but not surprising to me that hidden in if you read between the lines here, prize support for constructed play has dropped. The um, weird treasure chests are kind of part of the replacement where they're trying to create a hype train. But I think a lot of players have already seen through that and done the math and, and have seen that it looks net negative for the constructed players, which is not going to bode, uh, create much many ple- warm and fuzzy feelings in the community. No, no, not at all. Okay. Uh, if we are going to get this posted, we have to wrap it up. So... Um... Fair enough. We're, so we, we will revisit this topic hopefully with a guest next week. And for for now, uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com. Yep, and I'm Travis Allen. Uh, I write every Wednesday on MTGPrice.com. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. And I also show up on the webcast Cartel Aristocrats. Uh, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Uh, that brings us to the end of episode 35. Uh, I thought that your new mic your new internet connection worked beautifully. Uh, we're actually able to have a little bit of a back and forth. Um, so thanks for shelling, for tripling your internet bill just for our listeners. <laughs> I, I actually saved $25 a month while increasing my uh, access by 10 times. So I think it's going to work out for everybody involved. Yeah, that'll last for about a year. Uh, you'll be back to what paying what you were next year. And then in two or three years, you'll be paying more. And I say this <laughs> as somebody whose internet cost $30 when we moved into this apartment and is now 70 All right. Thanks, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.